prepared to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. Today is Wednesday's show on February 15th. Um, I've got a whole bunch of things to tell you today. I don't like it when people say, we've got a great show for you. I have no idea if it's going to be a great show. We haven't done it yet, and you don't know if it's going to be great either, so you're going to have to stick around to find out. i got a couple updates on some of the whistleblowers that I'm friends with and let you know what they've been doing on Capitol Hill. We're going to talk about a piece that has gotten an awful lot of attention uh, on my end for... Um, the FBI's targeting of radical traditionalist Catholics, probably a step too far. I got a whole list of things I'm going to talk about. We want to go over the Michigan State shooting. Um, I think that is a troubling situation, but I think that we should have a, an honest conversation about what that means and what it doesn't mean. Let's talk about a little bit about what happened to uh, some individual students that were uh, visiting the Smithsonian wearing pro-life gear. Yet another targeting of the federal government going after an agenda they are not authorized to infringe on, and it looks like the ACLU is going to step in, so that's fantastic. I want to talk about a piece that Julie Kelly did uh, about the Proud Boys trial and uh, maybe something we can all kind of take away from that, including is the government doing entrapment? Might do some live grabs here because I'm, uh, I'm doing this solo with no Dr. Phil, no producer Phil, rather. <laughs> Dr. Phil someone else altogether. Although, funny story just came to my mind. Uh, when I was a kid, I grew up in Dallas. And my younger brother played on a basketball team, and Dr. Phil was his coach. So that's weird. Before he was Dr. Phil with Oprah, he was Dr. Phil, the basketball coach for uh, my younger brothers. Small middle school basketball team. Um, we're going to talk about a weaponization of the IRS. Again, Lois Learner 2.0. got just the news article that I want to run through and kind of make sure that you are aware of it. Um, yet another example of the federal government trying to pick winners and losers. Uh, once again, it is... Uh, not an opportunity that the FBI, that the the IRS, that the Commerce Department, that the Small Business Association should be taking on themselves to censor speech or thought, but it doesn't mean they're not doing it. Um, and we're getting all the way down to the frontline guards at the Smithsonian. So we'll get into that. Let's uh, let's go ahead and start first right here. Let me see if I can open up this web page for you. There it is. Fantastic. Let's do a quick move. So we're going to talk about the Michigan, Michigan State shooting first and foremost. I think that was on some uh, a lot of people's minds. I'm seeing a lot of uh, pro-gun control posts. I'm seeing people talk about why this keep happening. Um, I saw a really good piece the other day, and I was actually um, was on a, a show with um, on, a, on a television show where they were before it. The segment before talked about if this had happened in southeast Detroit or in uh, southside Chicago there would be no conversation whatsoever. I think they're, of course, correct. This is a big problem that we are willing to talk about only gun control, you know, all the other kind of nonsense that people get really excited about um, regarding firearm safety when it affects a certain group of people and it has nothing to do with when it's others. The discussion was, is it class-based? Is it race-based? Um, I think that it's none of those things. I think it's just whenever there's a political opportunity for politicians to move forward an agenda that some of their base thinks is really important, in this case, gun control, then that's when we're going to see it. So let's talk about the Michigan State University shooting. I had a really weird window into this particular thing. I got a um, uh, DM on Twitter asking me to join and co-host a space. Uh, if you're not familiar with the spaces program, it's essentially like a, a panel or like a chat call. Uh, it reminds me of the old AOL chat rooms. 
but we ended up having over 17,000 people come into the room at some point in time. And uh, listeners, you know, between 2,000 and 3,000 listeners uh, listening in on what we were doing, just kind of live tracking what we knew and when we knew it in the middle of the event, in the middle of this active shooter until he was actually mitigated. And uh, I had the strangest experience because I was asked to co-host it. I didn't have a plan or agenda, and I'm not a newscaster by, by trade. I'm a criminal investigator. But what I do have a lot of experience on is sitting in a car and listening to a police scanner. And that's something I used to do, and I've done thousands of hours of it. It's not an FBI skill per se, but it was a safety skill that I developed when I was running my team because I wanted to be able to see what was happening in the area I was in and what was going on in uh, in the general community at large, and more importantly, what was the public safety aspect? Was there a fire department coming out to where we were? Was there going to be a police officer dispatched? Uh, for us, it's a when especially when you're in a low visibility or a a, um, a plain clothes surveillance role, what you're trying to do is avoid any kind of uh, attention from anybody. And law enforcement attention is probably the worst kind because everybody sees when the cops come onto a um, on a street. And having the cops come and stop by your vehicle when you're doing surveillance is, a, is kind of a no-go. It burns you, and uh, you have to explain to them who you are, and then, of course, they're going to run away. So we're looking at this um, you know, this case, this active shooter situation. Here's the things. I'll pull up CNN because I think that's as good a source as any in this case, talking about the gunman. So I'll access that. But one of the things that we were doing is I just pulled up a scanner, and it brought me to the understanding that a lot of people have no idea what to do in a real critical emergency where information is light, and they are dealing with uh, a lot of unknowns, particularly, you know, they don't have a connection into law enforcement. So what do you do when you find out, hey, I just got a text message. I'm a student and I got a text message saying there's an active shooter on my campus or in the neighborhood of your children's school or in the vicinity of where you work and you're getting this shelter in place notice. Like what is the action what is the plan? And if you don't have a plan, by the way, you're not going to have one in the moment. You're going to panic. That's what people do. So we started getting uh, students actually coming into the Twitter space, and they were interested in you know what people knew. That's you know they couldn't turn on the news, so Twitter was their lifeline for a number of these people. And what I did is I just started broadcasting a scanner for Ingham County in um, in Michigan State, and uh, we were able to access a scanner for the East Lansing. Uh, the Greater East Lansing Public Safety Division, which include both um, fire department and we got the battalion chiefs coming in and saying what they were going to do and different medic engines that were moving and, and uh, fire department engines that were moving around the city. And then also a number of uh, police departments, including those who came in on the mutual aid and then were accessible to the dispatcher there. A uh, couple comments on that. Number one, absolutely fantastic job by the dispatchers who were working that crisis, that uh, that active shooter scenario. It is an overwhelming amount of information to keep track of. And they seem to be doing an outstanding job, um, just like you would expect your public safety professionals to do. They really earned their paycheck that night. So just a great shout out that, you know, unsung heroes is, uh, is dispatch. And the people that are maintaining calm and order and moving units around and they were clearing buildings and you know working with the incident command structure in order to to mitigate this threat which eventually ended up being this gentleman right here that we see in the photo this is a 43 year old anthony Dwayne mcrae uh, a couple things about him it sounded like he was uh, he pled guilty to a firearm charge in 2019 uh, he was sort of let off the hook he was carrying a concealed weapon without a permit which is a felony in michigan i'm not real crazy about that felony I'm, i'd be curious to know more about this guy and whether he was on any sort of um, uh, mental health situation, but whether he was uh, being medicated or whatever. But he pled guilty to a misdemeanor, a year and a half on probation, still had his firearm rights, and then unfortunately turned around and ended up killing a number of people uh, two nights ago. 
which is really awful. Um, that is not the fault of the gun. That is a person. There is a person that made some bad decisions and obviously made other bad decisions. And um, that resulted in the loss of life. So there's some things we can do to mitigate those sort of situations. One of them is if you are of age and you are legally able, you should train, own, and carry a firearm. I will vehemently advocate on that. I do it everywhere I go. Um, I'm obviously trained as both a former law enforcement and, um, and former military professional. But when it comes to training, you can get training a lot of places. A lot of it you can do on your own. There's wonderful access to uh, resources on YouTube, teaching you drills, teaching you grip. You can dry fire. And then I would say once you feel comfortable enough that you can load, handle, and move around with your weapon safely, go and attend a class. Spend some money. This is your personal safety. Um, it doesn't matter if you're 21 years old. It doesn't matter if you're 45 years old. It doesn't matter if you're 80 years old. If you have the hand strength to carry a firearm, you should do so. And um, that puts you in a infinitely better position than someone who is hiding in a dorm room, hiding in a cafeteria, hiding in a, a locker room, as we found out when we were listening to the scanner, and just barricading a door and praying that uh, nobody comes in that door that's trying to kill you. It's, uh, it's a hopeless feeling, I have to imagine. It's very helpless one way or another. And there's no reason why you shouldn't mitigate that threat if you can. Now, obviously, within the law, I'm not advocating for carry in places that you're not allowed to. I don't know what Michigan's laws are on carrying, but this is a thing you could do in a lot of places, and a lot of states are figuring out that, you know, having a firearm in the hands of capable individuals. The good guy with the gun thing is many hundreds of thousands of times a year, it, it plays out in the favor of the American public which is to say that it disrupts a firearm-related crime on the other end when somebody is trying to be an aggressor and is illegally using a weapon to, uh, to do something. We, we're already dealing with laws that say that you can't kill, you can't, um, you can't go up and use a weapon in a robbery. In fact, you can't rob. So all these sort of things, um, they're already against the law. Gun laws are not going to change the game. So what you do is you look at the world as it lays and you try to fix it and, uh, and try to get back to something that makes sense, which is that you are responsible for your own personal safety. It is your job to be your own first responder, first and foremost, with no caveats to that. Uh, I know that Mike Glover does a really good job talking about it. He has a company called Fieldcraft Survival. You can go there and you can buy tourniquets and things like that. I highly recommend you carry a tourniquet. I highly recommend you learn how to take care of your own emergencies. And we'll talk about why that came up. So during this, this Twitter spaces, um, we found out that one of the students had a roommate or a friend or something that had become overwhelmed by the circumstances and had gone into shock. Commonly just, you know, just overwhelmed, catatonic, fainted or passed out. And the question is, is what do you do? Because you're not in a situation where you can get an ambulance to you, although that may be the best situation in the long run. Uh, make sure there's no underlying medical problems, but you want to make sure that you have an ability to mitigate the potential risk that person has, which is uh, mostly just a uh, collapsed airway. You want to make sure you can save, you know, people. And then if there was actually an, uh, a kinetic threat of some sort of a gunshot wound or a blunt force trauma of somebody attacking, you want to know how to do these things too. It's very easy to learn this stuff. A lot of this stuff is available on YouTube. It's available on Rumble. Um, I'm not necessarily going to put out that content, but I am going to talk about it today because it's totally relevant. And if it's the only thing you walk away with the show from, you'll be a better person for the rest of your life. So number one, learn CPR. That's, that's number one. You must learn CPR. It's very easy. Um, when in doubt, pump on the chest. If there is a very, very slow pulse, 30 beats a minute or slower, that's one every two seconds. You don't have to be a scientist to do it. You don't even need a watch. If it sounds like this, bump, 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 start doing compressions. There's a reason why. 
you need to do compressions even when the heart is still beating because what you're seeing is a slowing and we're not moving any um, we're not moving any blood around the way it should be so people are circling the drain usually at that point obviously this is in the like if you feel your buddy who's a uh, you know feel their pulse and their uh, um, <laughs> they run marathons or something or they're an Ironman this is not the person you're doing this on I'm talking about somebody who's symptomatic and has no pulse um, that is that is Moving down the, the, the drain, we want to do something about that. And you can do that when there is a pulse still. You don't have to wait for it to stop. Uh, that's number one. Number two, you are generally speaking in almost all states, you are not criminally liable, even if you fail, if you attempt to, in good faith, provide um, aid to an individual who is having a medical crisis or has a uh, trauma. Uh, you can go and do the best you can, and you are generally safe from that prosecution. Uh, if you don't, if you're not successful, so don't be afraid. Go out there. I used to tell people when I taught um, what we call care under fire, which is just sort of emergency action medicine. Uh, I used to tell students, FBI agents who were training, that the number one goal should be do something. Most people do nothing. Most people do nothing in all situations in their life. They they always talk about the fight or flight syndrome, but there's really three possibilities. It's fight, flight, or freeze. So many people freeze. Most people freeze these days. They don't take action. And you'll know whether you're an action-taking individual or not based on your preparation for it, the way that you're actually inoculated against the stress of that moment. So, like I said, touch the patient, touch the person. This is a human being that's having an emergency. Do something about it if you can. There's no reason not to. And if you're not successful and somebody gets there and they know more things, let them do it too. That's fine. That's great. Uh, CPR. Learn it. It's very easy. You can pick it up by watching videos. You don't need a CPR card to do CPR. You just need to push on the chest and know how to do rescue breaths. So that's number one. Number two, I recommend people carry like a roll of gauze. It's very easy to do uh, in your car. Carry it in a backpack if you're moving around. It doesn't weigh anything. And the other thing is a tourniquet. I will show you right now. I have a plate carrier sitting behind me. This is my plate carrier, that I, my personal one. I have gauze right here sitting right there up front and on the side is a tourniquet. It's actually sitting in a radio pouch, but this is my tourniquet. I carry a tourniquet whenever I'm doing firearms training. I carry a tourniquet in my car, like three or four of them actually. This is a, an inexpensive tool that could save somebody's life if they were having a massive bleed from one of their appendages, the arms or the legs. Um, we used to have a joke. I'd always see if I could get somebody to say that they were going to put a tourniquet on the neck when I was doing uh, training. And um, they would always, somebody inevitably would always say that you apply a tourniquet for a head bleed. And I would say only a GS-15 or above. For all of you who work in the government, you know, GS-15 and above, no mental acuity at all, no thinking happening at all, just yes men. Um, if you are a GS-15, you can call me up or you can leave it in the comments below, by all means. Comment about your GS-15 experience and why you're a good person and that's okay i will i will accept it there's plenty of good gs15s i'm sure but it's a good joke tourniquet this is made by north american rescue it is the uh, the cat tourniquet the cat this is the one that is the standard for the military it is the standard for most law enforcement agencies it is the standard for the fbi uh it is the standard for people who want people not to die from a bleed that is a preventable death okay these are very inexpensive 30 dollars is not a lot of money to carry around they don't really go bad but break them out of the packaging stage them in a way you could watch videos on it maybe i'll do one but you stage the tourniquet so that you can break it open and use it right away because anytime that you're waiting uh, is blood that is being spilled, blood that cannot carry oxygen anymore, blood that you do not have to put back in somebody's body. You don't have it. It's not carrying around with you. Very, very few ambulances are carrying blood or blood extender products like Hexand or whatever. So it's just not common. The only people that generally have it are, um, you know, uh, units that have a refrigeration. It's difficult to do. It's got to be thawed out and it's got to be used right away. So if they don't know there's trauma, it's generally something that they just keep in an emergency room. It goes into the trauma base. It's hard to put blood back in the body once it's gone. 
and people suffer when they don't have blood. So put blood back in by keeping it in in the first place. That's the best move. Carry a tourniquet, carry gauze. The gauze is going to be for any kind of wounds that are junctional. That's going to be like your shoulders. It's going to be down in your hips where you could apply it, your abdomen, uh, areas where you may need to stop bleeding. Um, that is not something you can apply a tourniquet to. You can tie it around things. You can put pressure on heads, things like that. And absorbent gauze, great stuff to have. So do that for yourself. Highly recommended. Um, I did this whole podcast yesterday and it recorded with no audio which is atrocious, is the worst thing. So I'm doing it again, and I'm going to run through an acronym that I think is really important. Now, when we talk about somebody who passed out on the floor in an active shooter situation, that's a very real possibility. And in fact, I did an after action with some trauma surgeons and um, some paramedics who were being refreshed on their paramedic certification back in probably 2018. And they were doing an after action of the Pulse nightclub shooting. Uh, 49 people lost their lives during that shooting. Seven of those people, is, it is my understanding from the, uh, the debrief I got, seven of those people, so about 14% of those people, died needlessly because they, they collapsed into a position where they were not fatally wounded, but they did die of what's called positional asphyxia. That's a hard thing to say. But essentially, they collapsed their own airway. They found themselves in a corner of a room. They got as small as possible, which is a totally reasonable thing to do um, when there's someone shooting at you and you have no cover. Um, you know, your better move is probably to fight, but um, a lot of people are not prepared. Fight, flight, freeze. The freeze instinct is real. Seven people died from freeze. They got very, very small. They were wounded. They crushed their own, uh, their airway. They, they had uh, diminishing returns on the amount of oxygen that they could recirculate and, and minimal respirations. And that circled and they ended up perishing from that. And they could have been saved literally by pulling them off the wall and having them lay in what we call the recovery position. So I'm going to cover what that is. You can, uh, I'll describe it as I did for the students that were on the, listening to the space. If you are just an audio listener, you can imagine this. I want you to imagine that you're going to put the victim or this person that has passed out on their left side. That means their left hip and their left shoulder are going to be on the ground. Their right hip and their right shoulder are pointing upwards. They are knife faced on the ground. Okay. In order to keep them like that, the first thing you do is you pull the right knee and put that um, in kind of a Captain Morgan position. You just pull the knee. Uh, you can hold their body with your body or your knees. You literally just pull them up against you. You're going to put their whole body facing you against your, your thighs, and you're going to put a knee on the ground in sort of a triangular position or a Captain Morgan kind of like one leg extended, and that's going to keep them pinned upwards. They don't roll over. Then you need to work on the airway. The airway is easily um, accessible. You put their head in a neutral position and you use their left arm like a triangle, putting their hand under their ear. Once you do that, you're going to have a stable base, and then you can put the uh, the right arm in the same way. You're going to basically put it so that it's it's laying over and it keeps their body from flopping. All of those things, you can use the right arm and put it under on top of the left hand as well. So now you have two hands, just like they're sleeping, keeping their head open. If they were to vomit or have any kind of uh, obstruction, it's going to be able to be mitigated because they're in an easy way where their body can clear it themselves. And even if they are struggling to breathe, it's going to help them. Okay, it's a very easy thing to do. There's no medical knowledge required. There's no technology involved. It's literally grab somebody by the belt, pull them up onto that side so their left side is facing the ground, put them against your body, pull their knee up, and now they are basically pinned in a good position. This could save a life and would have saved seven lives. Um, there's an acronym during trauma. And there's an acronym that people who don't know what to do can remember. It's very easy. When you have somebody has a traumatic injury, your thing to do is to march on. You need to march. Okay, and that is the uh, the acronym that the military uses for self aid and buddy care. It's what the TCCC, the Tactical Casualty uh, Combat Care, um, teaches law enforcement and military how to handle active shooter, you know, blunt force trauma, things like this. 
March. There's one M, usually I like to say two. The first M is movement. Move the patient to where you want to deal with them. Uh, but moreover, that you can move them into the recovery position. It's a perfectly good place to do a uh, you know something. If you have to get back to them later, you have them in a place where you can walk away, deal with another patient, come back and deal with them uh, while they're laying there in that recovery position. So number one, M for movement. But the real M and the, and the one that people always remember is massive hemorrhage. Massive hemorrhage means big bleeds. Like you took a liter of Coke and poured it on the floor. That's how much blood we're talking about. Big blood. Um, when there is a big pool of blood, you need to find out where it's coming from. And the only way that we're going to find a massive hemorrhage is by exposing the patient's skin. So you got to look on the back. You got to look on the front. You got to look on both the legs. We do what's called a blood sweep. I would encourage you to go look it up, how to do a blood sweep. I'm not going to go over it, but you're essentially just touching every part of the body, um, front and back with your hands and checking your hands regularly to see if there's blood. And then if there is blood, you're going to try to find out where it's coming from. That's the goal of a blood sweep. Um, and when you do that, that's your massive trauma. I'm sorry, your massive uh, hemorrhage uh, intervention. And the reason why is, as I mentioned earlier, once blood is out of your body, it's gone. It is gone. There's no way to put it back in in the field. So that is what carries oxygen. And what I'm telling you, March actually tells you the order in which a traumatic injury will kill you. Um, the first is losing all your blood. Okay. So blood is number one. Number two, A, M, A. A is for airway. Think of airway as the container. It needs to be uh, a solid container so it doesn't leak air out of it. And that includes your mouth is not torn open and doesn't have you know obstructions in it, your your throat, um, your your uh, your windpipe running all the way down into your lungs. Just being very simple about this. Um, we're talking about your chest cavity is not compromised, it's not crushed, and it doesn't have. Um, it doesn't have uh, holes in it, which is a big deal. We are trying to make sure that the integrity of the vessel all the way from your your, your oral pharynx and, uh, and your nasal pharynx, your, your mouth and your nose, all the way down to the bottom of your lungs are intact. Okay. And if they're not, we need to do things to stop that. That means maybe putting a piece of duct tape on it, maybe putting a, um, a sliced open Capri Sun, a gloved hand. There are things that you can use, a credit card. Uh, there's a lot of different techniques that you can use for field medicine that don't have to be special, a plastic bag, anything that will stop air from moving. And you can either seal it down with tape or you can hold it with pressure. You want to stop and make sure that there's a, there is a, a closed and patent airway so that we can get air from your mouth or actually the world in general down into your lungs where you can actually move it into your blood. Okay, so that's massive, uh, massive hemorrhage, airway, R is respiration, that's the mechanical movement, that's your diaphragm flexing and relaxing and pulling air into your body. It has to pull it through your mouth and your nose down into your lungs. If you can't do those things, then you need to have someone do it for you. And so that's where we move in. The intervention to the uh, the hemorrhage is going to be either packing a wound or doing a tourniquet. The intervention to the airway is making sure that the, the vessel is intact. And then the intervention for respirations, if somebody's not breathing, is to make sure that they breathe. You breathe for them. That's what rescue breaths are. That's the CPR piece of it. Okay. Um, after the R comes the C. C is for circulation. That's your heart. So once again, we need to have blood in there, in your body. We need to have air accessible to that blood. And then we need to move that, that blood around so that your body has um, perfusion to your brain and to your, your end organs. Those are the two most important things. Essentially, your kidneys and your brain are the two biggest parts that have to be because otherwise you get toxic and you can't filter out toxins. So you'll die from that. And if you don't have uh, oxygen going to your brain, then you will die as well because all the autonomic functions will, will cease and you won't do anything on your own. Okay, so we're doing those things. So CPR again, that's circulation. That means we're checking a pulse. We're seeing if somebody has a heartbeat. If they do, great. If they don't, we're beating for them with chest pumps. If you feel what your pulse is, it's probably 60 to 100 beats a minute. 
that's how fast you should be doing CPR. Um, if you don't know anything about CPR and you've never heard this before, this will change your life. <laughs> if you ever have to do compressions, you can do one of two things. You can do the beat of staying alive by the Bee Gees. Okay, that in your head. That's what you're paying. And it's beat, 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 staying alive, staying alive. That's how you do your compressions. Now, if you're a little bit darker and you've been doing this for a while and it's something that you're familiar with, you can also do another one bites the dust. That's the speed. Boom, boom. Boom. You're doing, um, you know, another one bites the dust. Uh, when you're a paramedic, that's something you tend to hear a lot too, because you just hear it in your head. But that's how fast your compressions need to be. They need to be quick. None of this TV like push, come on, push. That's nonsense. You push fast, you push hard, and you do it and make sure there's someone there to relieve you. So CPR is your correction for C. The last thing is H. And that's either hyperthermia or head trauma. There can be, it's usually like H slash H. So two M's, two H's. The acronym is MARCH. Remember that if you're ever in a scenario where you have to treat people who are wounded. If you come upon a car accident, if you find someone who's fallen off a ladder, these are all the same types of traumatic um, scans. This is what we would do for a head to toe. And uh, you would start with these. Okay, these are the biggest life threats that will kill people. And when it comes to head trauma, there's not a whole lot you can do. You have to make sure you keep their heads, you know, supported. And when it comes to hypothermia, that's that's cold. The people who have the worst outcomes when it comes to traumatic injuries, this includes penetrating trauma. If you're out, you know, hunting and you get shot in the leg or you take an arrow from somebody because they're uh, carelessly doing some bow hunting, you fall out of a tree stand and break your leg. I don't really care what it is. You get attacked by an animal, whatever. You roll your truck or your ATV. All of these things are all trauma. The fastest way for you to have a bad outcome is to be cold. You will die from the cold plus the trauma. Okay, so exposure is a real, real threat. You want to first make sure that there's blood, make sure that there's air, make sure that there's a heartbeat and that people are stable. And then you get them warm. It is critical. Um, if you have ever been in an ambulance that is like 95 degrees, it's because we're trying to get it closer to body heat. It's really awful to sweat your face off while you're doing CPR. Um, but if it's cold outside, that's what you have to do. You have to keep it hot. You have to keep that thing. So if you're running somebody uh, on a uh, on an emergency like this, if you happen to grab somebody and drag them to an emergency room, keep the car hot. Turn on the heater. Be uncomfortable as the driver. Be uncomfortable as the person in the back seat helping your friend, whatever it may be. Uh, keep it hot. And I would say do not wait for an ambulance if you have the ability to get somebody to an emergency room, if it really is serious. So that's something that the studies have borne out. You don't need to wait for an ambulance. There's no special vehicle power. It's just getting people to a surgical facility where they can do the real solution, which is generally referred to as bright lights, cold steel. That's what saves lives in trauma. Um, there are wonderful surgeons. They have incredible capabilities, but you got to get people to them. So... Uh, I spent a lot of time on this because I think it's super important. The second thing about that is um, there is a, a, a technology, once again, like this, this, um, this streaming, this scanner technology that I was using was really a potential lifesaver for people. And it's not because I was using it. It's just something that people should know of. You're never going to know how to use it if you've, already, if you've never downloaded it and you've never used the app. So I recommend that people download an app. The one that I personally use is called 5-0, Radio Pro. It has a nice little rhyme to it, 5.0 Radio Pro. It's about $3 in the App Store from Apple. I don't know what it costs on Android. I don't use that. But if you were to do that, you can get a free version of it. It just has ads and it uses more data. And I didn't have time for that because I literally have done thousands of hours of streaming on that. Um, 5.0 RadioPro.com 
I'm sorry, 5.0 Radio Pro, the app. Download that and then listen to it. Like go somewhere and listen to it or find out an area that you might be traveling and listen in on it and spend some time listening to radio code. The way that people speak on radios is not very easy to understand if you've never listened to it, if your ear is not trained. Um, they have certain things that you will get familiar with when you hear them. Usually a police officer or a medic unit will start with calling out their call sign or their unit number. So they'll say 171 and then you'll hear the dispatcher respond, 171. That's a go ahead 171, but they don't say all that. They just say 171, you hear another voice, 171. Then the person who said 171 the first time will speak and they'll say their message. I'm being dispatched to this. I'm going to go this. I had a report of this. You know, I'm whatever. Sometimes they use 10 codes. The nice thing about the 5.0 Radio Pro is that it actually has the 10 codes or at least a, a common set of 10 codes in the app that you can literally tap it on and it'll say info and it'll give you all the 10 codes. So when they say, uh, you know, we're, we're 10.7 or 10.8 or we're 10.2, what does that usually mean? Um, a lot of departments are moving away from that, but it doesn't mean that they're not still out there. So it's worth knowing that. And when you're traveling and you're in a place that you're not familiar with, you might want to know how do the police communicate there? Uh, oftentimes they won't say 10-4 um, and they won't say yes. They'll say direct. Direct is a, is a police code that I don't know why they do it, but they do it. They say, you know, um, you know, they'll say the, the dispatcher will give some information. And then what you'll hear is the officer, uh, the responding unit will say, I'm direct or direct. And that means they're going and yes, it's an affirmative that they are doing the thing that they said they were going to do. It's bizarre. Uh, if you're not used to hearing it, you don't want the first time to hear that is when somebody is moving around on your business campus or uh, stalking you, you know, you're in the parking lot of a Walmart trying to see if your spouse is okay or whatever. And there's a shooting, whatever the horrible scenario is that comes to your mind, you'd want to know what that is. And then the other thing is, is carry earbuds. You should carry earbuds. It's silly, like all this stuff. But like, if you want to be able to quietly listen to 5.0 Radio Pro because something crazy is going on, put it in your little go bag. Uh, set of earbuds weighs almost nothing. They're good for a lot of things, including like ear protection if there's actually shooting because then you can keep your awareness of what's happening. So simple tools, situational awareness increase, um, cost $3. There's no reason not to have something like that. There's many other tools. That's just the one that I like. That's the one that I know. And I highly recommend having access to that. I got a little sidetracked here on the, uh, the active shooter thing, but I think it's super important that we remember that the answer is not gun control or we don't have more guns. There's 400 million guns in public circulation in the United States alone. We are not getting rid of guns in this country in any meaningful way. It's not happening. So regardless of what they say, regardless of what the ATF comes out and tries to do, it does not matter. Guns will be a part of our lives for as long as I'm on this planet and probably as long as my kids are on this planet. They're durable goods. They don't go bad and they are around forever. So we might as well learn to be safe around them and have some um, contingencies worked out. So carry your own and be smart, get training, be uh, somebody who is a, a part of the solution and not part of the problem, who's complaining, who's going to come save me. You, you come save you. Nobody else is coming. It's just you. If you think about it that way, it's much easier. All right, whistleblower updates. Um, my buddy Garrett, Steve Friend is on the Hill today right now. Uh, Garrett has already testified. My buddy George Hill, who you heard um, on our podcast doing a long-form interview and uh, a prior uh, intelligence analyst with the FBI, has already spoken. They've been deposed. They are getting uh, contrary back and forth you know, discussions and uh, kind of the rumor that we've heard. And I've got some contacts outside of these guys who basically shared that um, the Democrat side of this committee, the weaponization committee, has no interest in looking into the FBI at all. And that should horrify everybody. The FBI is weaponized. There's no doubt about this. I will go on record saying it uh, explicitly, and I have examples, and so do you. They've gone after people like Mark Hout. They've gone after people who, um, they've written documents saying that they're gonna go after radical traditionalist Catholics, which is insane. They have gone after people that they claim are white supremacists who have no instance of it. They are using um, scare tactics, and they are doing some really crap work 
despite the fact that there's also decent work going on inside the FBI. But there's an ideological focus that is going on and permitted, and it is bad news. So the whistleblowers are telling me kind of that they're they're getting called in, um, that the Republicans are trying to get to the bottom of it. But uh, it's a long timetable, and it's not going to be fast enough if they don't pass some bilateral um, support for whistleblowers in general. It will not be successful. Uh, so the Republicans on, on the Hill need to get together and figure out who on the other side wants to do the right thing. They don't need a lot of votes, but they better figure it out so that we have protections for whistleblowers or this is not going to get done. Because waiting until 2025 to ev- examine what's going on in our FBI, like we could have a much different, uglier situation develop in this country. And uh, I think so many people are not concerned about the PSYOP nearly as much or what we would call fifth generation warfare. It's fourth generation warfare that it could decay into. And that's a real possibility. And if people aren't talking about it, they're foolish. Everybody that I talk, I talk to that has a serious understanding of how screwed up this country is right now is concerned that it will get what we call kinetic, which is to say physical. I don't want that. I don't want to be part of it. But it is a real possibility. And if we are not honest about it and taking steps to try to mitigate that in a meaningful way, and that means a curtailed FBI and intelligence on the domestic side, we're going to be in a bad space and it could happen very, very quickly. Um, so many people are talking about these, you know, balloons, the spy balloons and so on. It's all distractions. A lot of these things are distraction. Um, it doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be handled. It's just showing that we have a weak administration on many levels. And this Biden administration has gone fully into the pale by pushing on, um, you know, the, the, the COVID shot mandates and trying to root out the number of people that uh, that are dissenting opinions. And I'm going to get into that just a little further now. So let's get into the next article here. I've got a, uh, I think this is totally nuts. I'm going to sh- throw this up on the screen here. So this is an article from uh, lifenews.com or LifeSite News, I believe is what they, uh, they go by. Is that right? Lifenews.com. Um, the article is entitled Students Sue Smithsonian After It Kicked Them Out for Wearing Pro-Life Hats. They're literally wearing, a, there's a picture here if you're not looking on our, our Rumble stream, which you should definitely come check out. This is from February 7th. So this is a week old. I'm not trying to give you uh, the you know the updates in the world that are happening in real time. That's not what I'm doing. I'm not a news site. I'm an analyst uh, when it comes to this stuff. And what I'm seeing is, is that um, you've got not the ACLU, which is what I originally saw. It's the uh, ACLJ filed a lawsuit against the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum that used to be on my drive to work. It's uh, it's out there in Virginia. And uh, they had some students that traveled from Greenville, South Carolina, went to the D.C. area, uh, attended the National March for Life, which if you've never done, it is an absolutely shocking event. And I mean that in a way that uh, someone who hates crowds, I would go to the, the March for Life every year. Um, I would be more than happy to. The last time we were there, it was uh, it was closed down because uh, it was 2020 and they didn't have it. But I went to the 2019 and Trump spoke and it was one of the more moving experiences that I can remember and certainly the most comfortable I've ever been in a large crowd. So I highly recommend the March for Life, the National March for Life that happens in D.C. And uh, so here we are. We're talking about these folks. Uh, They went in and they wore a couple of hats. Uh, One of them had one that said Rosary Pro-Life. There were other people who were wearing other political type hats and uh, they were not kicked out, but you had the Smithsonian guards kick them out. I'm just kind of scanning through here, see if there's any fantastic quotes to put out there. Um, the lawsuit says that the, the defendants, which is going to be the museum and the staff there, unlawfully deprived the plaintiffs, these are going to be the students who wore those hats, of their First Amendment rights to engage in protected speech and expression in violation of the free speech clause of the First Amendment. So the issue here is not... Uh, that they wore hats. It's the fact that they made a, uh, you know, the political statement was being censored and it was being censored by the federal government. The Smithsonian is our institution. We own it. We run it. 
uh, we pay for it. Um, I, I saw this from Julie Kelly's website. It's going to segue nicely into what she has going on on Twitter right now. But uh, Julie Kelly is a writer for American Greatness. She does a great job. She wrote this thing that I thought was very interesting. So I pulled up here, usajobs.gov. If you've never tried for a, a federal employment, this is where you do it. You go to USA Jobs and you find uh, all the listed jobs in all the different categories. Now, this is a pretty decent paying job, I would say, for a security guard. Uh, Front Royal VA, if you're seeing over here on the screen, I'm highlighting it. But it is where the Smithsonian Institute has the Air and Space Museum. It's out in Front Royal. Um, I think that's right. Yeah, sounds right to me. Um, <laughs> I'm open to the comments telling me that I'm wrong. It, I drove that all the time, and now I'm, uh, I remember seeing Front Royal and all the signs. But in any case, uh, the Smithsonian is uh, the institute out there. They have their own police force, which is a federal position, and it pays at the NZ, November Zulu 07 pay grade, which they say starts at 65000 and it tops out at 85000 for a baseline police officer um, doing police for the Smithsonian Institute. Here's what I thought was really interesting, and this is why it, uh, I'm, I'm mentioning Julie Kelly. When you go and you search for education there's going to tell you the education requirements of this position okay and here it is right here i'm going to highlight it for the for you that are looking on rumble education quote this job does not have an education qualification requirement none not a high school diploma not anything for 65 grand a year. This is part of what I've always called the federal jobs program. These are the people that are willing to do whatever they're told without understanding necessarily even what they're getting involved in. They tell you how you're going to be evaluated, that you have to follow like rules and laws and regulations sufficient to practice law enforcement. But there's no education requirement. That's pretty shocking for a job that pays that decently. 65 grand without even having to get a high school diploma is a lot. Um, and then this is put into a, a suitability position of trust and fitness. Um, no security clearance required. There is a drug test. I don't know. I just think that's interesting that you're able to go and be a cop and, and have federal arrest authorities like these people uh, throughout these students without having any understanding of what the hell's going on in the law. I think it's a problem. Uh, I'm going to bring up another little article here. This is one that's in Julie Kelly's feed. I've actually retweeted it. So if you're following me, you should have seen this. And if not, then go look for it in my feed or hers. Uh, makes no difference. It's an American Greatness piece, which is up here. Uh, pretty good little graphic. This is... Uh, an article that's entitled, Did Government Intel Assets pl uh, Plant Key Evidence in the Proud Boys Case? And it says, we should be suspicious of weird coincidences. In the world of law enforcement, we don't really believe in coincidences. We should actually believe that um, there is a reason. We just have to figure out what that reason is. Okay. So uh, synopsis of this this article, I do think that it's worth a read on its own. Um, I think because of the, the particular allegations that are being made here are pretty uh, credible and they think they're a problem. But what it says is that there's uh, five high stakes criminal cases that are happening in the January 6th trials, five members of the Proud Boys. They're being charged with the quote unquote suspicious conspiracy charge. And uh, Julie's impression is, is that these are attempts to get uh, Donald Trump as an unindicted co-conspirator, basically saying that he was in control of a militia, which I don't agree that the Proud Boys are, saying that the uh, Proud Boy militia was being controlled by Trump and then being asked to execute a, uh, a coup against the U.S. government. This is the suspicious conspiracy or the uh, the so-called insurrection that went on. And uh, they're using this this extemporaneous comment that Trump made while he was in the, uh, the presidential debates, if you recall, several months before the January 6th event happened in 2021. They, uh, they asked him to condemn the Proud Boys for violence or some nonsense like that. And this is Chris Wallace basically spoon-feeding Trump an answer. And Trump said, stand back and stand by. That's the quote, stand back and stand by which they used to mean that he was in control of them and obviously had ordered them to do something evil and illicit. This is patently absurd. This is an absurd claim by absurd people. They are not serious. And yet they are going to court and they are taking um, the time and they are actually, you know, 
facing down, like the Proud Boys are facing down real jail time because of this thing, even though it's a totally insane contention, including, as I understand it, um, Enrique Tario, who is the uh, not the founder of, but he's the current leader. Uh, it was founded by Gavin McGinnis. So here's the thing. The FBI has very little understanding of what these groups are about. I sat in briefings in 2017 from Counterterrorism One. This is the, uh, the, the, the number one squad for counterterrorism at Washington Field Office. So that's going to be the people that are dealing with this. And then there's Counterterrorism Four, which is now the domestic extremist squad. Those people... Um, and, and it was this lecture was given by uh, Tom O'Connor, who is now retired. So I'll say who he is. And he's the former FBI Agents Association president. He was there for a long time. Him and his wife, both agents, they both retired. And uh, they were giving this talk about the Proud Boys and about Gavin McGinnis and about um, about Kekistanis. They were talking about Jordan Peterson and Milo Yiannopoulos and a bunch of this other nonsense. Richard Spencer. These were all in the same lecture, by the way. This was all for like new agents to learn about uh, domestic terrorism. And they had no idea what they were talking about, in my estimation. And and I'm a pretty aggressive follower of this kind of information because I want to know who are we talking about? What's going on in this movement? Um, are they conservatives that I agree with? Are they people that do things that are dumb? And in some cases, yes, some cases, no. But uh, very weak understanding of these things. They didn't understand what the whole Keck movement and the Pepe the Frog and all that. So if you're a listener to me and you're familiar with those things, uh, by all means, you know, you can also put some comments down there about your take on it. But I can tell you the FBI doesn't have a good understanding of it. And the analysts are very, very left leaning when they come to it. So the uh, the crazy thing about this, this particular article is that it's talking about how Matthew Graves, he's the, uh, the United States attorney for the District of Columbia. He's actually attending these trials on at least three separate occasions. That's not common. Um, if you're not familiar with the way that uh, federal prosecution happens, generally speaking, what you get is an a, assistant United States attorney. That's a frontline prosecutor known as AUSAs. That's the uh, the acronym. And the AUSA is the federal prosecutor that does the cases. You never really see a United States attorney. That's a political appointee. Uh, they only show up when they think it's really important uh, to be there. And it doesn't mean that they're not good prosecutors. Some of them are probably wonderful. I've actually met um, one or two United States attorneys who were wonderful people. They were uh, under Bush and they're living in Texas now in private practice, but uh, incredibly bright and very giving and, and, and capable and had a background as serious prosecutors. That's not always the case. It is a political appointment, so it runs the whole gamut of people that are totally incompetent uh, but never have to do anything, like uh, people who you know might run for district attorney but have never prosecuted a single case, but they're an attorney and they run for it and they get elected in some leftist nonsense city and then they just like try to do uh, policy they don't actually do frontline prosecution so worth noting anyway they're talking about this being a militia group that's really bizarre this entire document i'm sorry this whole um this whole article hinges around a discussion of a document entitled 1776 returns so that's the name of the document the allegation was is that this document was the blueprint that the proud boys were using in order to go and take over the federal government and overthrow the united states a totally absurd contention there are thousands of law enforcement officers in uh, washington dc there are hundreds if not thousands of national guardsmen that are like hanging out there you are not going to overthrow washington dc even with every single person who associates with the proud boys in the entire united states i will confidently say that that's a crazy contention um not happening and yet they're on trial for it so um and here's the real quote that's so wild in two separate criminal indictments prosecutors explained how the document this is the 1776 returns ended up in the hands of enrique tario the leader of the proud boys quote on december 30th 2020 an unnamed individual sent tario a document that set forth a plan to occupy a few quote-unquote crucial buildings in washington dc on january 6th including the house and the senate buildings around the capitol with as many as possible people or many people as possible rather to show our politicians that we the people are in charge 
Okay. The document is li listed as being a high level summary. Uh, the prosecutors are like banging their case on this saying this is a big deal. It's a plan. It shows the individual buildings, how to get in, how to cause a distraction, pulling fire alarms, distracting law enforcement, making a crowd so they can get in there and, um, and occupy and demand a new election. Wasn't well, that weird? They're doing a, uh, an insurrection in order to demand a new election. I, I just feel like that's absurd on its face. The, uh, the FBI agent that's testifying is a guy named Peter, Peter Dabrowski. Uh, sounds like he's out of New York. I don't know him personally. Uh, he was a JAG attorney from my quick research on him and uh, worked for the Army and is more than happy, apparently, to testify in these things. I just find it really disgusting that FBI personnel are engaged in this stuff. It bothers me at no end, uh, but we'll continue on. Um, so long and short of it is this document goes on and talks about how it was kind of a thing, but here's the real crazy part. Here's a quotation from one of the most recent motions filed by the defense. It appears that the government itself is the author of the most incriminating and damning document in this case, which was mysteriously sent at government request to Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio immediately prior to January 6th in order to frame or implicate Tarrio in a government created scheme to storm the buildings around the Capitol. This is Roger Roots. Uh, he's an attorney working for the um, for the defense, and they are seeking a mistrial with this motion. This is a request for mistrial. Um, so the real question is, does the government frame people? Do they uh, do they implicate people and create this these sort of situations? I'm going to do a quick search here for a book that uh, I think is relevant to our discussion. So I'm going to pull it up on Amazon. Let's go ahead and flip this back over if you want to take a look. Should be coming up here on Amazon. There it is, slowly loading as I'm using up all the bandwidth for this. Um, the book is called The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism. Now, this is not a new book. This is coming from October of 2014. It's written by a guy named Trevor Aronson. I have spoken to Trevor Aronson. We agree on how things work in the FBI. His book was listed as required reading, required, a, a, a requirement to understand the way the FBI works counterterrorism cases by my friends when I joined uh, the surveillance team in Washington, D.C. I think that's really interesting. Why is that? Because what he essentially says, and his whole purpose is, uh, and, and, and Trevor is a very left-leaning type guy. Um, he is uh, got a new podcast out called The Alphabet Boys talking about how the FBI infiltrated the BLM in Antifa in Denver. I think it's an interesting listen. I am not a partisan guy, and when the FBI is wrong, it's wrong. In this case, it's always wrong when it comes to CT stuff, CT being counterterrorism. The, the way that this particular book is written and the way that it helps you understand it, and this is the, the high-level overview, is that essentially the FBI finds people online or in person at mosques in the world on reddit whatever it may be uh social media and so on that have terrible ideas and say them out loud oftentimes these people are very low iq or they're very low awareness of what's going on in the world and they have these awful ideas they are um they they fbi pays sources to get close to them introduces undercover operations and then basically manufactures the case so that that person can take care of it. And if you want an example, Gretchen Whitmer, when you had, you know, six people in a car and four of them are FBI informants and or agents, that's how you do a manufacturing of terror. Um, that's how you do this thing. Now, uh, Aronson's case is all about the fact that the FBI goes after black and brown people. His, his thing is, um, you know, foreign terrorism, which is known as like Islamic terrorism, that kind of thing. That's his purpose. But you could literally swap out the word Islamic terrorism and black and brown people for white supremacists and domestic terrorism. And it's the same thing. It's the same playbook. Why does the FBI do this? Because they're incentivized to have these cases open and to 
conduct X number of dismantlements and disruptions. These are the statistical accomplishments that they claim inside the file that earns them the kudos and it gets the bonuses for the senior executives that are running the field office. And that's the guy like Steve D'Antuano, who was the one running the, uh, the Detroit field office and then was eventually promoted to the Washington field office. He hit his metrics. No doubt about it. Big metrics, too. And then he was in charge of the Washington field office on January 6th and obviously did that. And he's since retired. Julie Kelly was uh, very excited about reporting that. But I want people to know that this is a very important book to read. He has a TED Talk that's 15 minutes long. You can listen to that. It's got over a million views. And I've watched it myself. Uh, this book has been passed around the FBI because it's legit. It legitimately shows you. And the, uh, the cover, if you're not looking at it, is a bear trap. And inside the bear trap is the logo of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So um, Terror Factory, highly recommend that. I think it's worth your time. But moreover, is it possible that the FBI set up the guys in the Proud Boys? Of course. They have already admitted that they had sources there. And that's 100% how they do things. Who wrote that document, 1776 Returns? I think it's relevant. And if there, it was, in fact, written by some government source or written on behalf of the government based on, um, you know, an FBI agent who's running a source and said, hey, put something out there and get it to this guy. Big problem. Big, big problem. Not something we should easily handle and we shouldn't be comfortable with it. But it's out there. OK, a um, couple other things I wanted to uh, to note because we're having problems with media, obviously, in this country. Um, I'll scan back over here. So this is from Just the News. This is John Solomon's site. Um, half Americans believe mainstream media tend to mislead and misinform the public. That's the actual purpose of it. This is a Knights Foundation um, and a Gallup survey. Fully 50% of the respondents said that they do not intend, they do not believe that national news organizations are interested in giving the public good information. Um, that's not good. Only 25% of the people in this country said that they felt very confident about that. So yuck. Not a good situation that we're living in. We're living in a time when you have to be very discriminating against media, um, discriminating in your choice of media, and even moreover. And, um, you know, there's stories that are not being covered. I don't know if you've noticed, but the, the, the burning wreckage that was happening in Ohio, and I'm no expert on hazmat, but that was happening, and uh, very little coverage. I actually just saw it last night. I turned on uh, CNN. I was watching a very disgusting panel of people, uh, including some, like, cartoon characters, ladies with, like, these weird, you know, like, cat's eye glasses and weird hair colors and silly makeup um and uh you know this very effeminate uh, black guy in a suit and then this other lady who's the anchor whatever it was and they were all talking about something very important nikki haley just announced she's running for president like i don't care um, but it's amazing that what they will cover. And in the meantime, they were not covering the uh, the burning fires that were happening from polyvinyl chloride in, um, you know, tanker trucks that went off the rails in Ohio and what's going on in, in Texas with the derailment outside of Houston. So you just got to be careful with your news sources. You should be looking at a lot of different places. You should be looking at left and right. That's what I try to do. It's what I did when I was in the FBI. It's what I recommend people do now. The reason is nobody's telling you the truth. You got to figure it out yourself. Once again, like being a first responder, um, Go out there and find it yourself. You're responsible for what you think. You're responsible with, for what you know. Um, and if you listen to me and you're in the FBI, like go out and find some information that disagrees with what you think. Figure it out. Um, learn what a pure blood is. I found out that uh, guys in my office thought pure blood, people who were talking about pure bloods, which is obviously a Harry Potter reference and a joke about people who didn't get the COVID shots. Um, they thought that was a white supremacy reference. It's absurd. It's totally crazy. But uh, it's because you're uninformed. So don't be uninformed. The world's uh, too volatile right now for you not to have information. I'm going to bring up another article here. This is from uh, John Solomon's as well. This is just the news. Lois Learner 2.0. We talked about it uh, on the opening here. I want to discuss the IRS. Once again, this is the government getting involved in your free speech. It has no business being there. Um, 
a federal prosecutor by the name of a retired federal prosecutor by the name of Bill Shipley. Many of you know him as Shipwrecked Crew online. He used to write for Red State. Um, he wrote for UncoveredDC.com. But uh, big deal, like big deal that he said the right thing on one of these spaces that I was sitting in, panel discussion. And he said that the government has absolutely no interest in the outcome of criminal prosecution. And I would have argued that it doesn't have any out, like outcome interest at all. Its job is to just execute process. Um, that is not what we're seeing right here. So if people don't remember, Lois Lerner in uh, 2010 uh, was found to have been the person who was running the uh, IRS exempt organizations unit. That's going to be the unit that assigns the nonprofit status, 501c3, 501c4, and so on to individuals who are um, you know seeking that tax exempt status because of their church affiliation or nonprofit or whatever um, you know the the qualifications that they have to meet. Uh, Lois Lerner's organization, you know, she was the one that was kind of the, the one at the face of it. Um, it was exposed a couple of years later. Uh, they were going after the Tea Party and some other additional like right wing type things under the Obama administration. And uh, she ended up invoking the fifth, saying that she wouldn't talk about it. And she wouldn't talk about it because she didn't want to self-incriminate. That's bad news. Uh, this is another lawsuit that's coming in here right now, uh, sort of reminiscent of that situation. And uh, it's by a nonprofit educational foundation that known as Adams, Baldwin and Covey. Uh, Adams Baldwin and Covey Foundation Incorporated, also known as ABC in this case. And uh, what they did is they they went out there and they said that the Biden administration, now this is the Biden's policy that is being implemented by the IRS. Obviously, Joe Biden probably doesn't do it directly, but it is empowering these organizations to go do things that are infringing on First Amendment protected activities. That's not okay. That is not an acceptable thing. So the IRS questions uh, they claim are, quote, further evidence that the Biden administration believes it has the authority to license thought and speech, and it does not. And that's obviously true. It does not have that authority. And uh, so, you know, what sort of evidence are they talking about? They have one of these questions. I'm going to find it out here. Um, there, you know, a couple of really fun questions or uh, quotations from the law firms that are representing this ABC foundation saying uh, the thought police have found a home in the Biden administration. And that's uh, obviously very troubling. So IRS questions that were being posed include things are have you held a particular position or view on certain topics or issues if you do please detail the position or views of your organization um hello federal government you have no business asking those questions it's none of your damn business you stay out of first amendment protected activities which is what your views and your positions are that's the whole thing we can assemble and we can petition for grievances and we can have our own religion and worship the way we want and we can speak freely in this country that's the whole freaking point it's the whole point. That's what the First Amendment is. It says that you don't get a say in that. The government does not have a vested interest in that. And it has no interest in picking winners or losers in the free speech game or in the policy games. So here's another one. IRS, do you have any policies or policy or policies or guidance in place to avoid unsupported opinions or conclusions and inflammatory language in these activities? Look, there's a lot of unsupported policies or positions or guidance that happens in the church of any church, whether it be Scientology, whether it be the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, whether it be, um, you know, an evangelical church, whether it be a, a Jewish synagogue or, or a, a Muslim mosque, you th there's a lot of it that's unsupported by factual things. It's, it's based on faith. That's the whole point. You're allowed to have these things. So even if it's um, an unsupported position or it might be inflammatory, nobody cares. You're, you're the IRS. That's not your job. Either you, they get tax-exempt status because they meet the minimum requirements or they don't. So this is really gross stuff. Um, and it gets me hot and bothered, like angry. <laughs> Sorry, not hot and bothered, I guess. Like more um, flustered because it's just such a disgusting thing. I've got another question here. Explain how you ensure the contents presented in your educational activities are fair and unbiased facts. It doesn't need to be. You can take a policy position. That's, that's allowed. Uh, and that would permit an individual 
to form an independent opinion or conclusions based on these represented facts. Again, uh, the Catholic Church is a Catholic nonprofit. Uh, you know, it's a religious nonprofit. They have schools, they are educational, and they do not provide unbiased fair facts per se, because they believe that uh, the worship of Jesus in the way that, that the Catholic Church has always said is the best way. That's what they're advocating for. It's an advocacy group, and it's still a nonprofit because it's religious. So these are these are foolish types of things. It makes me really concerned. Um, but it does lead me to my final thing, which has been getting a lot of media traction. It put me on Tucker Carlson this week. Um, this week? Last week. On last Thursday, I guess. Uh, almost a million views on his um, on the, the little piece of it that was up on, uh, on YouTube. And uh, if you haven't seen it, you can find it on my profile. I might actually pin it now that I think about it. And uh, yeah, just a... Um, an obvious problem with the FBI. This obvious problem is that the Richmond field office put out a, a document that has since been rescinded. Thank God. But, uh, but it was still an attempt to open a door. I found out a little bit more about it since then. Uh, apparently a, um, a just out of college Intel analyst got it approved by a supervisor. It was, um, it was allowed to be published um, by the, the chief division counsel, which is the top attorney in the Richmond field office that's supposed to be calling balls and strikes and whether something is constitutional. And it was a document that allowed for the, or advocated the source recruitment inside the Catholic church of all places to try to keep an eye on once again, white supremacy, this, this boogeyman that the FBI has, um, because they believe that it is something that is going to be familiar to people in the traditional Latin mass and what they're calling radical traditionalist Catholics. Now I've been a Catholic for fifth, uh, 41 years, rather. Uh, I was baptized when I was a child, I was confirmed in high school. I went to Catholic, uh, schools going through a number of different Catholic schools, including different denominations, uh, sorry, rather, uh, different, um, um, liturgical traditions. I was in a Cistercian school. I was at a Jesuit school. I've been to just parochial schools, so on. Um, I've had Navy chaplains as my, as my, um, um, religious education, you know, uh, teachers and things like that. I've had people that came out with seminary degrees from Notre Dame, you name it. I've been through a lot of it and I've never heard of any white supremacy as part of the Catholic teachings or any alignment. But what they did is they essentially tried to draw a line saying that if you are someone who likes the Latin mass and you have a very traditional view on Catholicism, then you also, then you also are sharing common cause on the issues of abortion rights, which is not, you know, that's an ideological veil drop. That's the, the writer telling us, I say abortion rights in air quotes, because it tells us that the, the, the writer believes that there is a position the federal government has. And I'm pretty confident that's what the Dobbs decision says. It doesn't have a stake in. Um, moreover, it says that, uh, you know, things like LGBTQ rights or that agenda, um, immigrant issues and things like that are going to share common cause between these traditional Latin mass goers who are radicalized and, you know, white supremacists, even though it admits in the piece that white supremacists, generally speaking, don't like Catholics. I don't know if people know this, but the KKK used to go and try to do the same thing to Catholics that it did to, uh, to Jews and blacks. It's not a friendly organization. Um, white supremacists, where they do exist, are not people that are going to be able to find a home in any church, I would imagine, um, but certainly not people that are adherents to the traditional Catholic Mass and the pre-Vatican II traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. Bizarre, bizarre world. But as I discussed with somebody who was a um, who was a uh, an FBI whistleblower, brought it to me. This is an attempt to open the door up to going after Christians in general. I firmly believe that. 
Um, so if you haven't read the piece, you can go see my piece that I wrote, UncoverDC.com, our friend Tracy Beans, who's wonderful and has been real helpful. It has gotten me um, some some news play on, on people like Tucker Carlson. I've been back on my, my friend Dan Bongino's uh, radio show. Some of you have uh, are probably listeners there. Probably most of you are. Um, Glenn Beck had me on the other morning to talk about it. It's a real problem when the FBI is once again trying to pick these winners and losers and what speech is and isn't protected by doing so um, under the guise of this counterterrorism piece where there is no burden of criminal proof. There's no burden when you work a criminal case. Uh, I'm sorry, when you work a, a counterterrorism case. The burden is like, does terrorism exist? Yes. Can we articulate this person? Maybe. Should we be able to do things to mitigate it? And getting sources into the Catholic Church to keep white supremacists out is full crazy. Um, if you haven't listened to our, our uh, long-form podcast for this week, please do. It came out on Monday. You can download it. It's about 90 minutes long or close to it. I talked to Mark Hout talking about uh, you know uh, radical traditional Catholics. I would say Mark is pretty darn close to that sort of thing and a wonderful man and a, uh, a great person who is talking about being a leader, a protector, and a provider as a man, unapologetically masculine Catholic, um, a man who defended his son and was attacked for it by the DOJ in a way that is totally illogical. So go listen to our interview with him. Um, I learned some things on it. I feel like uh, there are people in this world that are fighting the spiritual battle, and there's no doubt. Um, I, I like to think that I'm part of it, but Mark is definitely on the front lines and has gone to the mat um, when he knew when he was right, and he had his wife supporting him all the way, so that's really wonderful stuff. So check out our long-form interview there um, if you haven't heard it already. Um, I'm going to pull up real quick on the fly. I bet I can do it. Here we go. Um, if you do like what you're hearing here, we appreciate it. If you share it with your friends, if you will subscribe to the podcast and anywhere you do, um, you're obviously listening to it so you can hear what that is, but subscribe if you haven't already. And uh, the five-star reviews are things that we really do appreciate. If you can throw one on, uh, nothing better than a five-star review to let us know what we're doing. And uh, if there's things that you don't like, you know, let us know that too. I'll take a, I'll take any other reviews as well. Go give us a review. Uh, give us a like. Give us a share. Here's a review that comes from Mimi number five with the American flag after it. Way to go, Mimi. Here it goes. It says, valuable insight into the inner workings of the Bureau. Uh, five stars. Before this episode, I had not a clue as to how the FBI's inner workings could make this entity as disjointed and cumbersome as it is now I can see how. What seems to be common sense to the public about missed opportunities is legitimately plausible by the sheer disconnect from upper management to the good men and women in the field. Yep, that's all true. Uh, in my career working in management with a large corporation, the success of the business could not function the way the FBI is run. All are right by saying it needs to be dismantled and rebuilt with Kyle and Chris, I assume Chris Gonzalez, in the lead. Thank you. I will become an avid follower of this podcast, and I would like to hear more about the changes needed for reform. So much change is needed. Thanks so much, Mimi, for your five-star review. Folks, we still have a gift send go up if you want to do that. I'm working on some sponsors. So if you are a business owner and you'd like to get in on the ground floor here, um, it'd be amazing if we had some sponsors. I've got some products that I've already been using for years that uh, reached out to me, and I'm going to be uh, kind of negotiating with them to see if that makes some sense. Uh, end of the day, Thanks so much for listening. It really does mean a lot that people care what we have to say, not just from me, but I'm speaking on behalf of all the suspendables, Steve, Garrett, George, and uh, any of you that are also suspendables, though you who have drawn a line in the sand and decided that uh, you will not backpedal on your principles and that you will not uh, give up the fight in uh, for this country because it needs to be done, and I do think it's worth it. Again, you've been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin.